0: Now, over the last, this is our sixth week in our study of the theology of the hearer. And each week, what I've been doing is giving you a different theological truth that we have termed hearing aids. And the purpose of these truths are to help you and I to become a better listener of the preached Word of God. And so what we've seen is in the very first week, hearing aid number one was a theological truth that God speaks. Amen? That God has spoken in many times and in many ways, but today He primarily speaks through His How Church through the Word of God. In week number two, we saw hearing aid number two, and we, we found that God speaks through preaching. When a man of God preaches accurately and proclaims the Word of God accurately, then God is speaking. And that sermon and that truth in which he is proclaiming is as binding and as authoritative as if God were to speak to you in an audible voice face to face. That's the teaching of the word of God. Uh, Third, the third hearing aid is this, is that God speaks to transform Because sin has come into the world, all of creation has fallen. We are in great need of regeneration, great need of being transformed. And the primary tool that God uses is His Word. He uses the Word of God to be able to change us and to transform us. Apart from the Word of God, we would never be saved. Apart from the Word of God, we would never, the written Word of God, we would never be transformed. And so we see here, number four, God speaks to transform the role of the Spirit. We understand that the word of God is the tool, but the power comes from the Holy Spirit. When a man of God preaches the word of God accurately, the Holy Spirit comes, combines with that word and uses that word inside of each person. And what he does, he begins to cultivate that heart and prepare and transform that person in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, last week we saw hearing aid number five, which was preparing for the word. Uh, We said that we prepare for all kinds of events in our life. We prepare for school, we prepare for work, we even prepare for death. But one of the events that we seem not to truly prepare for appropriately is the preaching event. The preaching event uh, uh, that God has set apart specifically to transform people. No other event like it. And so God has set this time aside, so we need to come prepared. We need to come with our hearts prepared, with our sins confessed up to date. We need to come expecting that God is going to speak. We need to come believing that this is truly the word of God, and God is going to speak to transform lives on Sunday morning. Well, today we come to hearing aid number six, and that is receiving the word. We've prepared for the word, for the receiving of God's word, and now we're talking about receiving God's word. We finally get to it. Now how are we supposed to respond? How do we receive, understand, and respond to God's word as it's being faithfully preached within this particular environment? When you're hearing preaching of the word of God, what is it that you're supposed to be doing during that time? Some of you sit back and go, I didn't know I was supposed to be doing anything. Well, then this is the sermon for you. All right. So what we're going to find is this. This brings us to our our passage this morning in Acts chapter 17 and verses 10 and 11. But before we jump in there, it's important that I give some context and background, because we're not going through the book of Acts through an expositional series, it's important for me to give you a background and context to understand what exactly is going on here. And what we know is this is that Paul and Silas have been preaching for three weeks in the city of Thessalonica. And while they were there, they were explaining to the people in the synagogue that Jesus Christ himself was indeed the Messiah. And they continue to explain the necessity of his death of his burial, and of his resurrection." And in proclaiming the gospel something amazing supernaturally happened there were a group of Greeks that came to faith in Jesus Christ they were saved and there was a group of Jewish religious leaders that didn't like any of that they weren't having any of it they didn't like it so what they did is they went to a group of disgruntled Baptist church members and they began to get them stirred up a little bit and so what they did was this angry mob went into the house of a man by the name of Jason and Jason was one of these newcomers, one of these new believers. And so what they did is when they go in, they tear all of the men out. They bring all the men out. They throw them on the ground, basically before, bring them before the city council. Now, what they were hoping to do was that Paul and Silas were going to be there because that had been the home that Paul and Silas had been staying for the last three weeks. But they found out on that day, on that morning, they were nowhere to be found. And that takes us here to verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. The Bible says... The brothers, referring to the Christians there, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So what we find is, is that these particular men, these believers that were there in Thessalonica, they get get wind somehow through the the Holy Spirit um, that something bad is about to happen, that things are beginning to heat up and they need to get Paul and Silas out of the city. So that night before they took out, they sent them away to the city of Berea. And what we find there is they did what they did typically when they came to a new city. The disciples would go in, the apostles would go in to the local Jewish synagogue, and they would begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because it is Luke who is actually writing this account. He's the one that's writing this in the book of Acts, telling us of what transpired. And he can't help himself but to praise those Jewish Bereans, those Jews that were in Berea. And what he says, the reason that he praises them is, notice in verse 11, He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That that phrase, more noble, literally means to be high-born. But it came to have a more general connotation of being open, tolerant, and generous. So what they did was, he says, look, they are completely different. The Bereans are completely different than those Jews that were found over in Thessalonica. He goes, those guys in Thessalonica, not only would they not receive anything that Paul Paul and Silas were preaching, but they wouldn't even seriously give it any kind of consideration at all. They were closed off to the word of God. But that was not how the Bereans were. They received the preaching of Paul and Silas. And so what they do is these particular brains stand for us today as a model of how you and I, faithful believers in Jesus Christ, should receive the word of God when it's ultimately being preached. In fact, it's interesting, over 2,000 years of church history, the amazing thing is, is the name Berean has come to a point where it's used synonymously by, uh, when we describe someone or a group of people who are faithful and rightly receive the word of God. Of God. So what we want to do this morning is this, is we want to take a look at what made their receiving of God's word so praiseworthy. What was it about their receiving was so right that it caused Luke to kind of take a time out and go, hey, listen, they were more noble than all the rest. What 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 made him do this particular thing? Well this morning we want to look at two aspects of the receiving God's word that help us to know how you and I should receive the word of God when it's preached as well. First of all in the text of Scripture we see that they listened with desire. They listen with desire. The call of God for us is when the word of God is being preached is for you and I to desire the very word that is about to be preached. Now, notice, if you will, in the word once again, what they say is now these Jews were more noble than those in Jerusalem and they received the word with eagerness. Now, that word received there literally means to take hold of and to take hold and to make something uh, of one's own, to take hold or take possession of something. So what it describes is how they were listening. So when they were listening to Paul and Silas, they weren't taking part in, in they weren't uh, passively listening, which means that you're kind of listening, but you're not really, because you're not really sure that whatever's being said ultimately really has anything to do or any significance with you. That's not how they were listening. And they weren't, not only were they not passively listening, listening but they were not passingly listening. Now, just so you know, I made that word up. Okay, that's not a real word. That's why you're sitting there going, I don't get that. Passingly, I'd never have heard that before. It's because I made it up to try to prove a point. What they were not doing is not only were they just kind of passively just not interested because they didn't think it applied to them, but they weren't listening with the intention of, of thinking that what was being said applied to somebody else. You guys got it? So what they were doing instead is they were listening in such a way that they took hold and they took personal possession and responsibility of ultimately what was being said. Why? Because they were they understood that if these words that they were saying were truly of God, then they were truly for them. Did you get that? That's their conviction. If these words that they're speaking are truly of God as they claim to be, then they have got to be for us. These words are personally for us. Now, folks, that's how we need to come into the house of God. We need to come in desiring that we're receiving the word of God, understanding very clearly that he is speaking to us. Oftentimes it amazes me how people come in and, and listen, I'm not blind. I see you yawning. I see sometimes people dozing and I apologize if it's me that is ultimately boring. I never want to be responsible of being boring of preaching the greatest word in the whole world. I don't want to do that. But ultimately what happens is I think the yawning sometimes comes other than not getting enough sleep. It often comes because people really just don't know if really what's being said has anything to do with them. They literally believe oftentimes they first begin to hear what's being preached and then they go, Preacher, I'll give you five minutes, say what you do, and I'll determine whether what you're saying is really going to help me and really has anything to say to my life. And if it doesn't, then they just kind of cut it off, yawn, do their thing, play their puzzle, whatever it is. Listen, all of the Word of God is for you. It's for you. Got it? He said, You're preaching on marriage. I'm not married. It's for you. But you're preaching on unconfessed sin. It's for you. Okay? You got that? The whole thing is for you. And here's the deal. We don't come just haphazardly, passively listening. And we don't come passingly listening. I love that word. Passingly listening. See, this is, this is what happens. And talk with you. I love you. And keep talking with me. Because I learn a lot from hearing you. <laughs> and when you come and you say things like this. When you say, man... Brother Mike, that was right on. Boy, I know a guy at work that really should have been here to hear that. I wish my spouse had heard that. I wish my son had heard that. And I'm sitting there going, man, I wish you had heard that. I wish you had heard that. Take possession of what is being said as they did and receive it as do you own an understanding that God is speaking to you through whatever text of Scripture it ultimately is. And notice this. Not only did they receive it, but notice how they received it. They received it with eagerness. Now, eagerness, the term means strongly wanting to do or to have something. These people received the word of God. In great expectation and eagerness, they just wanted to receive the word of God. They just wanted it. They loved it. They were passionate for it. Now, my question for you is this, is, but where does this type of desire come from? Where is it? How is it that there are some who are here today that have that eagerness and desire just to hear the word of God and other folks, they could sit, take it or leave it. What is the distinction between there? Now, I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but let me give you one reason. Let me give you one reason why people desire the Word of God, and it all comes from their conviction. People desire earnestly and eagerly the Word of God when they believe that we have a God who speaks. When they believe that our God speaks... They are eager to listen to what he ultimately is going to say. So the question was, did the Jews have this kind of conviction? Obviously, not all of them in Thessalonica, but a good majority of them did. Why did they believe that God spoke? Because God had sovereignly set them apart in a unique way, in a way that he had never set another group of people in all the world apart. He had set the Jews apart and he sovereignly chose to reveal himself to this little tiny group of people. He revealed to them who he was. He revealed to them what his will was and his ultimate redemptive plan for mankind. He did that to the Jewish people. And how did he reveal that to them? He spoke to them. He spoke to them sometimes audibly in his own voice. Sometimes he spoke through a prophet. Sometimes he spoke through an angel. But you know what? A lot of times he spoke primarily through the written word of God and the Jewish people understood that that written word of God was God speaking to them. And it was as authoritative as a binding as if God came to them, held their face and spoke in an audible voice to them, telling what and what not to do. That was their conviction. And so because of that, they loved the word. Because of that, they, were, they, 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 they read it, they studied it, they meditated on it, they memorized the word of God. They loved it because they had the conviction that God would speak through it. And because of that, they had a great desire for it, a great passion for it. I think we see a great example of this particular passion in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, you know the story, the Jews had been in captivity for some 70 years. And finally, through the workings of God and his sovereign plan, he decides it's time for them to get out of that captivity and go back to Jerusalem. So one small group goes back to Jerusalem and underneath the leadership of Ezra, they begin to rebuild the temple there. When the temple is done, they are in in dire need of having the wall built around the city to protect it from their enemies. So God supernaturally calls and lays it on the heart and speaks to Nehemiah to go. Nehemiah goes and begins to rebuild all of those walls. When, When all of the work is done and completed, they ask Ezra, the priest, to go and dedicate this particular wall. So they build a huge scaffolding, all told in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, and they build a huge scaffolding, and he stands up on it. It's right next to one of the major gates, and this is what happens. The people, 42,000 people gather around, and they begin to chant, and they begin to call out, and they begin to call for one specific thing. They're making a request. Now, if you're not familiar with the passage, interesting question, what was it that they were requesting? Here was a group of people... No, here was a group of people who had worked day and night nonstop, for two entire months. They were in danger. They were in the midst of difficulty, hardship with food and with enemies coming down on them all the time. They're exhausted. They're completely and utterly worn out. And so what do you think that they ask? Well, did, did they ask for a day off? Did they request a vacation? Did they ultimately sit back and go, hey, we need to have a party and celebrate and a feast because of what we've all done? Is that what they requested? They could have requested anything. But no, all of them in unison begin to call out and say, bring out the book. Bring out the book. Can you imagine if God's people today had that kind of desire for the word of God. If there is one thing that does not define the contemporary church today, it is their passion for the word of God. They're passionate for so many things, for buildings, for programs, for coffee, for seating, for music, but not so passionate about the very word of God. Now, if we were, could you imagine if we were this, if we had this kind of desire? Can you imagine dads going home and ultimately sitting there and the kids have been at school all day? They've been homework all day. They were at ball and everything else. The end of the day, and you sit there and say, son, you've got an hour left. Daughter, you've got an hour left. What do you guys want to do? You can watch some TV or you can go ahead and you can uh, play some video games. What is it that you want to do? And they both sit there and say, no, dad, just bring out the book. Husband turns to his wife, honey, you've been working so hard. You're working at work and you're working at home and you take such great care of us. And I know you're worn out and your feet hurt. Honey, we can sit right here and, you know, would you like to watch a movie or would you like to get out or whatever? And she just sits there in exhaustion and in a heart hardship of the day. She just sits there and she says, honey. Just bring out the book. But then at church, when people come. They're sitting in there and there's all kinds of things that people can request a bigger classroom for their small group or Sunday school class, a more comfortable chair, maybe change up the air conditioning, the temperature within the building. And they cry out all these things. But can you imagine if we had the desire of the book where we sit there and go, man, I don't care what I sit on. I don't care what kind of air condition or not air conditioning we have. Brother Mike, I know we have had a difficult week, a hardship week. We have been working. we uh, We have difficulties going on. But all we want you to do is just bring out the book. Just bring out the book. And the Bible says that that is the desire of how you and I should receive the word of God with that same unabiding passion and desire for it. How should we be receiving it? Not haphazardly. Not our minds all over the place, but you come in literally sitting there going, man, just give us the book. I need the word of God. That's the desire that I have to preach or give it to us. That's the call that God says. He says, that's how we're to receive it. We're not only supposed to receive it with desire, but the Bible says here that we're to receive it with discernment, with discernment. Now, notice he says, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans were eager to receive the word of God. We've seen that. But you know what? They weren't stupid. And they weren't naive. And they weren't easily fooled. They understood very clearly that not everybody, catch this, not everybody who claims to be a spokesperson for God who preaches and speaks his word is actually that person that actually does so. They understand that. So what we find in the word of God is, the the, the word examining here is what they're doing is the Greek word which means to investigate or to take a judgment call. He says what they're doing is as they're speaking, they're actually taking part in what we call filtered listening. They're excited for the word of God. They're hungry for the word of God. They want to hear it. They want to receive it. But they understand that they need to be very careful. So they filter it. And what do they filter it through? The word of God says through the scriptures. So what they do is they hear what the preacher says They want to receive it, but before they take and completely accept it, they filter it through the word of God. These folks would hear them preach, go back to the word, look in the word to make sure that what these men said God was saying, God was actually saying. And did you know that they did it consistently? Look at the verb tense. It was they were they were examining. This is a continuing action. He says that they were doing it daily. This is something they did once. This is something they were actively doing, not just desiring the word, but also receiving it in a discerning way amongst them. And what they were actually doing is they were taking part in discernment. What is discernment? It's the ability to examine and distinguish truth from error. That's what they were doing. They were listening with discernment. Now, the question for us is this. I think this is the question is, do we really have to listen with discernment today? I mean, mean, are we really in need of that? I mean, it is 2011, right? And and I would say that we are in more need of it today than probably any other time of history. You say, why? Because there's more preaching and availability to preaching than ever before. And what I want you to understand is, your pastor, and I love you dearly, what I want you to understand is not every radio preacher is preaching truth. Not every TV preacher... Is preaching truth, no matter how big or how big his or her church is. Not everybody is preaching truth. Not even the ones that normally preach truth that I'm trying to do always preach truth. I try, but you need to even be filtering your own pastor's truth. You get that? The one that you've come and sat under and entrusted to rightly divide the word of truth. You need to be sitting there discerning whether what brother Mike is saying is true or not. You say, well, I just don't know. Is it really, really that true today? And the answer is yes. Since the creation of man, Satan has always been out to destroy mankind. And his favorite weapon of choice is deception. And in the Garden of Eden with Eve, what did he do? What did he do? What weapon did he use? He deceived her. And when he deceived her, all of creation fell under sin, the curse of sin and death. And guess what ultimately happens? He hasn't changed. He still has a massive, great desire to deceive the people of God. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan's constantly trying to deceive his people. But you know what the difficulty about his deception is? It's not obvious. If it was obvious, you know, it wouldn't be called deception. You get that, right? What does he do? He disguises his lies. He disguises his liars. That's what he ultimately does. So this is what I want you to understand. When I talk about discernment the, discernment, the ability to examine and distinguish truth from error. Let me give you a different definition. Discernment is the ability to examine and distinguish truth from almost truth. Because that's exactly what the devil tries to do. He tries to give you some truth, but it's just a little bit off. So that is not the truth of God. It's a lie. And he loves to be able to disguise it. And the hard part about noticing and recognizing these false prophets, you say, who are they? We can sit down and have a conversation. I have no problem with telling from the pulpit and shouting it. Listen to me. No problem naming names in the pulpit. Do you understand that? And I understand. Listen, young people, you might be turned off on that. Why does he got to talk about people like that? Listen, because the word of God says that as, a, as your pastor Paul, even Paul himself called out specific names to warn his people of who were the wolves wearing sheep's clothing. And so you need to understand that you need to get over that whole thing and sit there and say, if it's untrue, we need to know what's ultimately untrue. And so what the scriptures tell us here is this is is that these false prophets are hard to identify. Why? Uh, because they don't wear name tags. They don't hold signs that say I'm a false prophet. You get that? So how do we ultimately do this? The Bible tells us that they disguise themselves. Uh, Paul says later in 2 Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twelve through fifteen, he says, "In what I do, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do." He says, "There's other people out there that are saying they're doing the same thing we are, and they're not. They're boasting of it, but they're not doing it." And he says, "For such men are false apostles." Deceitful working men disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Did you catch that? And so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So what do they do? They disguise themselves. So if we can't determine who are false teachers, who are good teachers and who are false teachers by the way they look, how ultimately are we to be able to recognize them? Very simply by their speech, by what they say. The only way you can tell is by discerning the words that come out of their mouth. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse two, second, 2 through 5. Jesus said just that. He said, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Do you know what it's saying? Do you know how you know whether somebody's a believer or not? He knows the voice of God and he does what the voice of God tells him to do. That's how you know you're a believer. You're not a believer because you signed a card. You're not a believer because you walked down an aisle. You're not a believer because somehow you were able to make it through, join a church, and you're a church member. You're not a a believer because you prayed some prayer at some particular time or some revival. You're a believer in Jesus Christ because you've repented of your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, in the completed work of Jesus Christ, and the evidence of your salvation is you know the voice of God and you follow what He does. That's how you know you're saved. People say, I don't know if I'm saved. I say, are you doing the things that Jesus Christ has called you to do? Yes, well then that's pretty good. Oh, I know I'm saved. Are you doing the things that Jesus called you to do? No, then you're a liar. You're not saved. You're lost. That's very simple teaching in the word of God. Do you understand? But notice this. He says at the same time, he says, and a stranger, he goes, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So the Brians knew the voice of God. How? Why? Because they knew the word of God. That's how they could distinguish. You pour yourself into the word of God. You know the word of God. Then when that which is untrue comes about, you're sitting there going, man, I don't recognize that. That seems off. That seems strange. That seems foreign. And the reason it is is because guess what? Jesus Christ never said it. So here's, here's what I'd finish with. He says, now the only way, I said, now the only way that we are going to discern what is God's voice and what is not is to know the written word of God. To listen eagerly, but then to continue to search the scriptures in order to discern if what is being said is indeed of God. So here's your two roles. okay? how are you supposed to receive the word of God with desire? With great eagerness to want the word of God. Secondly, with great discernment that you're making sure whatever that preacher is, whether this preacher, whether Sunday school teacher, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's a if it's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. It doesn't matter if it's uh, one of your favorite preachers. Your job called by the Holy Spirit is for you to call by God is to discern what it is that you're hearing to receive it and to make sure that it lines up with the word of God. Now, what I want to do right now is this, is I want to try to help you. I want to give you a couple of practical points. And the reason that I'm giving this to you, and it's very odd for me to do this type of thing, but after preaching the text, I want to bring some application that I believe will help you to discern, become a more discerning listener when you're listening to different preachers preach. Is that okay? Can I give that to you? I give it to you because I love you. I don't think everybody out there is the boogeyman trying to get you. I think there's some great preachers out there as well. But the idea is you need to determine which is right and which is not. Let me give you a couple principles that will help you to become a more discerning listener. First of all, listen for this. Listen for context. Listen for context. Follow me very carefully. Listen for context. Context simply refers to what that which goes before and that which follows after. If a person merely reads a scripture without understanding the scripture surrounding it, there is a great chance of misinterpreting the scriptures. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, you could pull a verse out of anywhere and make it mean whatever you want to, right? You sit there and you open it up. We often do this with Bible roulette. How many of you have done that? Don't raise your hand. Uh, I've done it. And, And you sit there and go, God, I just really need a word. Yeah? And you look around and you're like, the. Okay, God, I need another word. You know, you understand you're looking down for some kind of something for God to be able to speak and you can literally look at a text and because you're imposing your desires upon the text, because you're looking for something, you'll be able to find it in that scripture. So what you have to do is you can't look at one scripture by itself. You have to look at the scriptures that come before it and you have to look at the scriptures that come behind it. Now, let me just share this with you. Preachers should give you the context. Do you remember in the beginning of the sermon? What did we do? We said, we're coming to the book of Acts, but there's something I have to do. I have to give you background and I have to give you context so that you properly understand what's going on in the text. A preacher should give you that. Do they always give you that? No. Does it mean that they're a bad preacher? Not necessarily. He could be good. He could be wrong. He could be false. He could be true. He could get the text right. He might not be able to get text right. But here's my point. If he doesn't give you the context, you're going to have to find it. You have to find out what the context is. If he's preaching a word of God, you need to read before. Say, hey, what's going on here? So I understand very clearly what he's saying that this particular text says. Let me give you an example of this. One scripture that you've heard many times is John chapter 12, verse 32. And Jesus said, if, uh, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus, in essence, says, hey, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. I grew up in more of a charismatic church. Man, I, I love that church. I'm, I don't believe with them doctrinally and theologically, but they were many believers and they loved Jesus. And uh, one of the things that my preacher did is they seem to always preach on worship. Always. Right. Baptists never preach on it. Here's Max always preach on it. Right. We need to somehow meet in the middle. And so what ultimately happens is this is he gets up and he would always use this. He says, guys, try to get us fired up to be able to worship, to sing louder, to raise our hands, to dance, whatever it was. And he would sit there and say, you understand what is at stake here. He says right here in our worship service, as we're worshiping people. Lives are at stake here. And we'd be like, what? And he would look back to the scripture and he says, remember what Jesus says. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So if we lift him up in our praise and worship, if we lift our voices in praise to him, men and women and children are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I sat there and guess what? It made me sing louder. So I would sing louder. I don't think the pastor appreciated that, but I sang louder. So for years, that would always be the text that would always lead me to get in and be very serious about worship. Right. And then one day as a teenager, I began reading through the text of scripture and I just so happened to read John chapter 12, came to that verse. And I'm like, man, that's right. If I be lifted up, I'll raise all men unto me. And immediately I'm thinking worship. Then in verse 33, the very next verse, John, who was the writer here, he interprets the previous passage. He says he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus wasn't saying, I'm going to draw all men into me. If you guys would just start to sing louder. Now, that might be nice. I mean, I, you know, that, that might be good to, to get people. But that's not what the text is saying. Jesus was saying. If I am lifted up and die like a common criminal, and the curse of God himself is going to be placed upon me on that cross and I die, I will be the way that you will come to God The Father. That's what he's saying. And so simply because of the context of us taking something out of a context, we we don't understand the richness of the text. So you have to understand the context. Second thing, listen for authorial intent. Now, this is very similar to context, but it specifically speaks to the original intended meaning of the author. I believe personally that if there's anywhere that good-minded, well-minded, well-intended preachers go wrong, it's this point. I know guys that say that they do expository preaching, going verse by verse, explaining the text and applying it. They will. This is if they're going to get something wrong. This is where they ultimately get it wrong. And what I mean by that is they're going verse by verse, but they're not really capturing the original essence and meaning of that particular text that was originally intended. That's what we mean by authorial intent specifically speaks to the original intended meaning of the author. Please understand this, because a lot of people in the Baptist church get, get messed up on this, and I'm not sure why this book is not open to interpretation. There is one interpretation of each passage. In other words, when the Holy Spirit moved men, we see that in the very in, in Second Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there was the original divine author, the Holy Spirit, working through the human author to write down the very words of God. Question: Did God have a purpose for what He wrote? Was there a meaning for what he wrote? Church? Yes. Okay. And so what that means is my job and your job is to as carefully as we can find out what the meaning of that text is. Okay. It can't mean today what it didn't mean then. You guys with me? So we have to figure out what it is saying within its context. Each scripture has an intended meaning. Now, there's a lot of applications. Okay. But there's one meaning of the text. Let me give you kind of an example of me. OK, and it's not about me, but I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So let me tell you my faults. OK, and Mark, chapter four, classic example of this. And I'll just tell you how I preached it five years ago. Fifty, I mean, twenty five years ago. Um, what happens here is this. We see the story of Jesus stilling the storm. You know that story? I already you guys feel goosebumps, don't you? Because, you know, it's coming. Jesus still in the storm. And this is how many preachers I've heard it time and time again. And this preacher has preached it. Five years ago in this very church. You ready for it? I'm telling on myself. I'm self-destructive. All right. And so here's what it is. This is usually how the sermons go. You can have peace in the midst of the storm of your life. You know what story I'm talking about, right? Where Jesus goes and he's in the boat and, and, and all of a sudden it's going, it's moving around. The guys are trying to row and they think they're going to die. And Jesus is snoozing, right? He's catching his ease. And so they get up and they go, Jesus, don't you care for us? We're about to die. And then he gets up and he goes, peace, be still. And they go, you know, and they're done. And so this is normally how it's done. Preacher will sit there and go, man, you can have peace in the midst of your storm. It says "And the way you can is you've got to remember three things. First of all, you've got to remember the promise Jesus said, I will go to the other side. Amen. I will go to the other side. You got to remember the promises of God, promises of God that you each of you have. Now, I preach this. Okay, I'm not making fun of anybody but myself. All right. And every other preacher who has preached this way. He said, we will go to the other side. So remember his promises. But then you've got to remember his presence. Where was Jesus in the midst of all this? He was in the bow of the boat, stern of the boat. Sorry. He says, and where is Jesus right now with you? He's in the stern of your boat, my friend. You're like, oh, man, that's good. I don't have a boat, but that's cool. I get it figuratively. I get it, man. He's in my boat. That makes me feel good. Now, the key there is, is that is he with us? Yes. Okay. but there it is. So remember his promise. Remember his power. If you're a good Baptist and, you know, I'm uh, uh, alliterating with peas. What comes next? Power. Oh, yeah. Jesus got up and he said, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obey his voice. Right now, you've got to remember the power of God. That in the midst of your storm, what do you have to do? You've got to remember his power. He can automatically bring peace to you and still the storm. Now, here's the deal. I'm not making fan of anybody else except for myself. And here's the deal. mean, that sounds good. Doesn't it? That'll preach. I don't think it should. But that'll preach. I mean, it's comforting. Don't you kind of feel comfortable about it? Man, it's promises. It's praise. Man, that's good. Now, I think you can find those truths in other passages of Scripture. God's presence. We go to Hebrews chapter, the book of Hebrews 13, 5, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or you go over to Joshua chapter 1 where he says, I never will leave you forsake you. That's what the text is saying there. But I don't think that's the primary purpose of that text. Listen, honestly, do you sit there and if you hear a message like that, as encouraging as it might be, do you really think the authorial intent of Mark way back then was sitting there going, man, I hope celebration I hope they understand that the reason I'm writing this is so that they can have peace in their storm. And when I preach that message, can you picture Mark over on the front going, Right on, buddy! You got it right. No, what I think he would be doing is going, Dude, that's not my point at all. Stop. That's not the point of the text. You say, Well, what is the point of that text then? Keep reading the context. Keep going. At the very end of that, what does Jesus say? Or what do the disciples say? They go, Who is this that has the power to calm the wind and the waves. When you read that text in its context of the whole book, you understand that Mark's purpose of writing the whole book, it was to prove and to show that Jesus Christ was truly the son of God. And then in that particular chapter, what was he doing? He said that this man has the power over creation. Who has the power over creation? God. And the very next story is the story of Jesus healing the demoniac, delivering a man that was filled and demon-possessed, and all the demons ended up leaving. What was the point? It was showing that this man, Jesus, had the power over the supernatural world. Who has the power over the supernatural world? God. God. The very next story is Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. She was dead and Jesus came and gave her life. Who in the world has power over death and life? God. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God. He's God. This Jesus has the power of over all these things. That was the authorial intent of the text. And you sit there and say, well, won't that encourage all the other people when you preach the whole God is in your storm? Yeah, it will encourage, but it will not transform. It might sound good. It might get the ear, but God is not ultimately honored in it because it is apart from the original intention of the author. So what do you have to listen for? Ask yourself, ask yourself this question, does what the preacher say this text mean possibly be what the original author intended? Remember, it cannot mean today what it did not mean then. Next, listen for explanation. The preacher's primary job is to faithfully explain the text. Do you guys understand that? That's preaching. That's the major part of preaching is explaining very carefully the, the, the text of Scripture. Ask the question, does he fully and clearly explain the text of Scripture? Does he just read it and then go and begin to talk about other things? Or does he sit in the text? Remember what we talked about? If somebody's preaching, you should be getting whiplash. Look down at the text. Look what the text says. Look what the word says. Look what God says. We like, down and the majority of his time should be explaining what that is. Do you remember when in the text of Scripture here, we begin to say things like he received with the word with eagerness and we begin to explain that. Then we went on to the next sentence. Listen, if he's not explaining the text, I don't believe he's preaching. So he's got to faithfully read and explain the text of Scripture. Now, you would listen. Yeah, he says, you must listen carefully to the explanation. Too often, people will want to bypass the explanation and want to get to the application. They say, just tell me what it means to me, right? You ever feel that way? You're like, oh, brother Mike, I'm going down, man. Quit explaining this text. Just just tell me what it means, man. Just tell me what it means to me. If you go asking, the first question you ask is, what does this mean to me? You will never clearly understand the text of scripture. Your first question is, what does the text mean? That's it. And how will you know unless somebody explains it? How will you know without the explanation and the appropriate explanation of the text? If the preacher does not clearly explain the text and jumps too quickly to the application, we will be uncertain if what he is calling us to do is truly founded on the word of God. It's the distinction between merely teaching and preaching. Preaching has teaching in it, just like we've done today. But with the preaching, there's a call for transformation. There's a call for faith. There's a call to respond to what God has already taught us. But here's what we have, we've, we've got to understand. If the preacher gives us a little bit and doesn't really explain the text, but then turns on you and me and starts telling us what God is telling us to do, how are we sure that God is really telling us to do what he's telling us to do if we haven't really understood the explanation of the text? You got you guys with me? And so what he says is we've got to know what it means. Ask the question, is what the preacher is calling me to do consistent with the meaning, the clear meaning of the text? I'll give you an example. Just a couple minutes ago, I sat there and said, we need to desire the word or receive the word with desire. The scripture was receive the word with all eagerness. Do you think that translates into application? I think it does. Finally, listen to this. Listen for Christ-centeredness. Probably the most important point of all. The word of God has a single unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation. What is that story? It's redemption. It's redemption. The story expresses God's purpose and plan of reconciling the whole of creation to himself. That plan is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Each part of scripture reveals a different aspect of God's redemptive plan. Because God's redemptive plan is Jesus... All Scripture, when rightly divided in, when rightly interpreted, speak of Jesus. You say, "I don't believe that." I believe all Scripture is about Jesus. Then you don't believe Jesus. Luke, uh, uh, Luke wrote in Luke twenty-four, verse twenty-seven, in beginning where you don't believe Luke. He says, "In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, speaking of Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself." Crane Goldsworthy uh, uh, poses a wonderful question. This is what he asks. Can a sermon be a Christian sermon without Christ as its center? I think there are a lot of people that are trying to pass it off all the time. I hear tons of sermons that I never really hear the name of Jesus Christ and the role of Jesus Christ. If I get up and I begin to preach on marriage apart from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ... It's not a Christian message. A sermon without Christ as its center is nothing more than good advice. There are plenty of books that can give you good practical advice. We preach Jesus for the lost and the saved. We preach Jesus so that the lost can come to faith in him and we preach Jesus to the saved so that we know that it is only through him that we can now have the power to live the life that he has called us to. Apart from the call of faith in Christ, as sermon is nothing but a call of legalism. If I come in here today and I say, these are the things that you need to correct in your life. You need to do this. You need to stop doing this. All I'm doing, and I never mentioned the gospel and the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's not only that it's not a Christian message, but all I've done is heaped a burden on you. Because when you leave, you think the message is, I need to go out and just try harder. Okay, I'm really bad and I'm going to try harder this way. And I'm going to go ahead and just pull myself up at the bootstraps and I'm just going to do what he said. I'm going to try harder this time. That's not the gospel message. That's not what we're trying to get across. What we're trying to get across is this is, first of all, that call of God for the unbeliever should see I'm not living that way. I'm a sinner for the believer. What he says is, hey, listen, listen. I failed in this way. That was my sin. But Jesus Christ has forgiven me. But now he calls me. And now because of my salvation, the Holy Spirit dwells in me. And now I have the power to do what God has called me to do. To live how God has called me to live. Not by me. But by the power of the Spirit that lives in me. What the message is calling is faith in Christ. If the guy doesn't call in faith, but just tells you to do something apart from the completed gospel of Jesus Christ... Then guess what? It's not a Christian message. It's not a Christian message. Jesus, we come to you today. And Lord, we've heard what you said. And Lord, I know that a lot of this people are just going to have to take some time just to begin to muster. But I think at this point, I think the primary thing they need to remember is that there is a way laid out in Scripture for us, an appropriate way to receive the Word of God. We need to receive it with desire. God, there are some here that just don't have that desire and they're wondering. God, I pray right now that they would pray for it. Say, Jesus, give me the desire for your word. Let me be eager to hear your word, the desire. Give that to me. And God, I pray that I I really believe that part of that comes from the conviction. Give them a conviction that you speak and you speak through your word and you speak through the preaching of that word. And God, finally, God, let them become discerning listeners. So many Baptist folks, so many Christians... Don't filter what they're listening. They just listen, accept it, because some preacher told them somewhere what what they said was truth. And God, it's not always true. God, everything that this preacher says is not true. This preacher right here is a fallen man, saved by grace. And even though I strive, and even though I try to accurately depict and preach the truths of God's Word, I know sometimes I get it wrong. Our folks need to check the Word of God, examine the Word of God to make sure what is you and what is Mike. God, I pray at this time, God, would you call some? Will some be saved? Will some be made right? Will we respond to the calling of your Word? In Jesus' name, amen.